The Bible, uh, for me, is a guidebook. I think it's inspired by God, and I do think it's filled with inaccuracies. And you'll see things in there that remind you of yourself, and it'll make you really want to change. You'll realize that that Bible's not lying to you, but it's telling you truth. Just a story book written by some people about some character. There's plenty of things that even if you don't believe in God, there's plenty of things in the Bible that can improve your life. I personally don't think everything should be taken literally. The Bible? Mm, that's controversial. <laughs> Thank you for asking. The Bible is still here. It, this book is almost 2,000 years old. It still exists for some reason. And to me, that stands out. That means something. It's not coincidence. Is the Bible reliable? As we've been going through Explore God, we've, we've come to the question of now looking at the Bible, this book right here. But we've got to understand that this is not just a book. This is actually a collection of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 20, 27 in the New Testament. I've got to do my math. That's why I'm a pastor and not a math teacher, have a real job. Um, not only that, but, but these 66 books were written by over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. And what's amazing about that is, is when you read the Bible as a whole, when you look at it as a whole, what we see is, is that there's one theme, one storyline that runs from beginning to end, the story of, of man's rebellion against God and God's working to bring man back into a right relationship with him. And while all of this is interesting, that it's been written by so many different people over such a long span of time, and it's a collection of so many books, while that, all that's interesting, it, it doesn't really help us answer the question, is the Bible reliable? And there are still a number of people who, who have questions about that, and there's, there's a couple of uh, big arguments that are often brought up, this, and uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Some of the arguments that, that people who question the reliability of the Bible often have about uh, the Bible's reliability. And so we're going to take a, a look at those, a couple of those this morning, and we're going to try to answer this question, is the Bible reliable? And so we're going we're to first uh, look at the, the question of archaeology. Now there are a number of people who, who would say, well, doesn't archaeology disprove the Bible? I mean, haven't we done enough digging to find out that, that really what the Bible has to say is true? And actually what we find is that over and over again as more and more discoveries are made that, that the Bible is actually supported by archaeology. And it's important that we understand that the Bible is never going to be proven. You can't prove everything that happened in the Bible through archaeology. But what we find is that the Bible is actually supported by archaeology. In 2004, in Old Town, Jerusalem, there was a, a construction crew that went out to prepare a sewage line break. And they started digging, and they were trying to dig down to the sewage line that had broken, and, and eventually they hit some pretty hard rock. And whenever this happens in the, that part of the world, because there, there are so many archaeological things that, that could be discovered over there, they have to stop work, they call in the experts, the experts come in, and they, they have to determine what, if anything, has been discovered. And so the archaeologists come out to this broken sewage line, and they begin digging. And the more they dig, the more they find. They find that it's not just one row of solid rock, but it actually goes down. And then it goes down again. And then it goes down again. And so you have these stairs, and these stairs are leading to, eventually they uncover a pool. 
We've got a picture of it right here. Uh, this is called the Pool of Siloam. And right back here in this very far back corner, you can actually see in that shadow there the sewage line that's running through the background of the Pool of Siloam. And so they have this major discovery. And uh, they find this Pool of Siloam, which was important because up to this point, a lot of critical scholars looked, about the, looked at the Pool of Siloam in Scripture and they said, well, this place just doesn't exist. People in the Bible are just making things up to suit their purposes. Uh, but as they began to excavate it, what they found is that uh, this, this pool um, was, was around during the time of Hezekiah. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 20, you can read about the Babylonian siege of the city of Jerusalem. And so the, the Babylonians have the city of Jerusalem under siege, and King Hezekiah inside Jerusalem says, you know what, if we're going to make it through this thing, we're going to need some fresh water. And so he has Hezekiah's duck tunnel dug from underneath the city, going underneath the city wall out to a point where they can collect fresh water, and it comes in, and guess where it ends up? The Pool of Siloam. And so prior to this point, people were saying, well, that just never really happened because we don't have the Pool of Siloam, and now we have the Pool of Siloam. Well, eventually the Babylonians do completely destroy the city of Jerusalem, and this pool, the Pool of Siloam, is destroyed with it. But when the, when the Israelites are carried off to captivity, and then uh, a number of years later, they're, they're brought back out of Babylon uh, under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. This pool is restored. In fact, if you were to go to Nehemiah chapter 3, you would read about Nehemiah restoring this pool of Siloam. And it remained restored for a number of years. In fact, as, as they began excavating this, they found that there was a coin uh, that dated to 103 B.C., and then as they continued the excavation, in, in another corner they found about a dozen coins that dated from between 66 to 73 B.C. And so that tells us two things. Right? The first thing that tells us is that people have been throwing money into water fountains for thousands of years. <laughs> the second thing that tells us is that this pool, the Pool of Siloam, was active during the time that Jesus was alive. Right? In between those years, this pool was actively being used. And that's important because... In John chapter 9, we read about Jesus' encounter with a man near the pool of Siloam. And he performs a miracle. And, and up until the point when they discovered this pool of Siloam, scholars said, well, this just never happened. Jesus never did this. We don't have the pool of Siloam, so it must have never happened. John's just making all this stuff up. But now we have the pool of Siloam. And what we find in John chapter 9, we read about this miracle where, in my opinion, it's probably the grossest healing that could ever happen. Um, but, but it's in Scripture, right? So Jesus comes across this man born blind, and his disciples say, Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents uh, that he would be born blind? And they're like, well, nobody, nobody sinned. It's not because of sin. It's so that God's power can, can be displayed. And he spits on the ground, and he makes mud out of his own spit, right? It's pretty gross. And then he puts it on the guy's eyes, and he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And I'm sure the guy's thinking, oh, yeah, great. I, I thought I would just leave your spit mud on my eyes forever, but he goes and he washes in the pool of Siloam, and he's healed. He, he goes home seeing. And again, we have this record that, that critical scholars, skeptics of the Bible said this couldn't possibly be real because we don't even have the pool of Siloam. And again, uh, while, while this doesn't exactly prove everything that's there, it does definitely support the claims of Scripture, that what Scripture says is true. There's a, a, a number of archaeological discoveries, much like this one, that, that demonstrate that the places and people that are recorded in Scripture actually lived. They were actually there. But there's one, 
one uh, particular discovery, archaeological discovery, that stands out above all the other ones. And it's, it's not because it, it proves that someone lived or that a place existed, but this discovery actually demonstrates the reliability of the text of the Bible itself. That over time, people have argued that, well, as the Bible's been copied and translated and passed down, surely it's got to be full of errors. In fact, the video we saw earlier, that was one of the complaints the guy said. He's, he says, well, it's just full of errors. And so there's this idea that as it's passed down, that as readers would come across it or scribes, that they would change whatever the scripture said to meet their own needs. But in 1947, uh, we, we have a discovery that demonstrates that the manuscripts of the Bible um, exhibit unity over a stretch of thousands of years. So in 1947, there are two Bedouin shepherds who are out watching their goats, and one of the goats goes missing. These teenage boys that are watching these sheep go looking for the sheep, and they come across uh, the goat, and they come, come across this cave um, near the town of Qumran, which is north of the Dead Sea. Now this wouldn't normally be a problem, except the Bedouin people believe that evil spirits live inside the cave. So you've got two teenage boys, the thought of evil spirits in the cave, they're not going in. They don't care how, what happens to the goat at this point. They're, they're not going in. Um, so they come up with a plan. They've got to get their goat back. They're just not going in that cave. So they decide, we're going to throw a rock into that cave. And maybe that'll scare the goat out. So they throw the rock into the cave. But they don't hear the normal sound that you'd expect to hear of a rock hitting the cave wall or the cave floor. Instead, what they hear is the breaking of pottery. And now they're, they're literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, what do you do? Do you brave the evil spirits and go in and find out what, what that sound was? Or do you go home and just wonder about it for the rest of your life? Well, lucky for us, these, these young Bedouin shepherds decide that they're going to go in. And when they go into the cave, they find stacks and stacks of just pots containing manuscripts, ancient writings. In fact, as they, as they did more and more discovery, what they found is... Uh, you, you'll see that this isn't just one cave, but there's a series of caves. There's actually 11 caves where they found 1,100 manuscripts of ancient writing, Hebrew literature, the biblical scripture. They found things written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and all of it so well preserved here in the caves. Now, you're probably wondering, well, how did all of this writing get here in these caves? Well, what happened was during... The Jewish revolt against the Romans, there was a group of people called the Essenes, and they were committed to a communal lifestyle. They, uh, much like the monks that we have today, right, they're out, they live in community, and they're committed to uh, transferring and, and copying down scripture. So when the, the Jewish revolt happens, they want to protect the word of God from being destroyed, and so they take it and they hide it in these caves. And so, so now we, we have this great discovery, and a part of that was, um, was one of the greatest discoveries that's been made, which was the Isaiah Scroll. Now, the Isaiah Scroll is, was found here in Qumran, and it dates back to 100 B.C., which is just 600 years after the time that Isaiah wrote his um, original manuscript. Prior to finding this scroll, the Isaiah scroll, the oldest manuscript we had of the entire book of Isaiah was the Leningrad Codex, which dated to around the turn of the first millennium, 1000, BC, uh, 1000 AD. So this, now with the Isaiah scroll, gets us 1,100 years 
closer to the original. That's pretty amazing, 1,100 years. Now, when critical scholars found out about this, when, when secular scholars found out about this, they couldn't wait to get their hands on it. Here's our chance. We're going to compare the Leningrad Codex, which is written around the first millennium, and we're going to compare that to this document that's 1,100 years older, written in 100 B.C., and what they were expecting to find was that they were going to be just completely different, that they would say opposite things, that, that the text would have been changed, that if someone found something that... Uh, something was going on in history, they would change what, what the older version said to meet their own needs. But here's what they found when they compared these two documents that were separated by 1,100 years. We don't have time to go through the entire book of Isaiah. That would probably be my longest sermon ever if we did that. But we can take one chapter, Isaiah 53. Right? It's, it's a very important chapter, not only to um, Jewish prophecy, but to Christians because Isaiah 53 is known as the chapter of the suffering servant and it's where you get this picture of the Messiah who would come and suffer and die and be raised from the dead for our sins prophesied 700 years before the time of Christ and here's what they found when they looked at Isaiah 53 and they compared the Leningrad Codex with the Isaiah scroll they found that there are 166 words in that chapter of Isaiah when they compared the two, there were only 17 letters that were different out of 166 words. 17 letters that were different. Ten of those were simply spelling changes. So you can, you can spell the word labor, L-A-B-O-R, or you can spell labor, L-A-B-O-U-R, right? It's just a simple spelling change. That's ten of the letters. The remaining seven, four of those um, come as a stylistic change. Because in Hebrew, when you, when you add a letter to a word, you can also add a conjunction, which is a single letter in the Hebrew alphabet, vav. So there you have just simply a stylistic change, nothing that impacts the meaning of the text. The only significant change that they could find, the remaining three letters make up one word, Isaiah 53, verse 11. In the Leningrad Codex, what it says is that after he suffers, he will see life and be satisfied. Now compare that to what the Isaiah scroll says. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It doesn't make a difference. Either way, it says the exact same thing. And this is what they found over and over and over again as they compared these two texts that are over 1,100 years old. This completely crushed the secular scholars because what they expected is they were going to find that the transmission of scripture, the copying of scripture was like the world's longest game of telephone, right? We all know the game of telephone. Someone starts over here and says, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. And by the time it ends up over here, it's where are we going to go eat, right? And that's what they expected to find, but that's not what we find. What we find is that there is this consistent transmission of the text, faithfully transmitted over thousands of years. Now you're probably wondering, well, how is it that, that there are so few changes over 1,100 years? Well, here's how. You see that the scribes in ancient Israel were committed to having a complete, careful uh, transfer of Scripture. So they had this process, and uh, the scribes, to be a scribe, you had to go through first a number of years of training. And then when it actually came time to copy and, and um, transmit the text over, 
there was this, this very careful process, and it began each day by, by taking a ritual bath. You would bathe your entire body. And from there, you would, you would go in, and uh, you would pick up your ink. This was a special ink made with a special recipe that was only used for copying Scripture. And from there, you would, you would go in, and you, weren't, you didn't just sit and look at this page and copy over. No, the word had to be spoken out loud. So someone would be up front in a room full of people, and he would say a word out loud. They would repeat it back and write it down. And then they would move on to the next word, and the next word, and the next word. And if they ever came across the word Elohim, which is translated God in our text, in the English text, they would have to stop, and they would have to clean their quill before they could write the word Elohim. If they ever came across the word Yahweh, which is the the Hebrew personal name for God, whenever they would come across that word, which appears in the English text as L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps, they would have to stop and again completely cleanse themselves, take another bath, and completely clean themselves, and then come back and be able to write the word. It's that careful process that, that allows us to have a text that we know is reliable today. In 1934, uh, in Manchester, England, in the Ryland Library, um, there was a discovery made of a group of papyrus. And these papyri were found in 1934. They were purchased in Egypt in 1920 by a man named Bernard Grinfield. And when Grinfield purchased these papyrus, he brought them back, hands them over to the library. The library stashes them away. For 14 years, they go untouched until someone discovers them, and he begins translating them. And what he finds is that there's this one papyrus, a little small piece, um, labeled P52. It's now called the Ryland Fragment. And on this fragment, we have on the front side John cha- part, portions of John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. And on the back side, you have John chapter 18, verses 37 and 38. And so they began studying this, they began translating it, and they send it off to be dated. And it's since been dated to be around 125 A.D., that this was, this was uh, written and recorded on this papyrus. It was 125 A.D. Now, that's a pretty big deal because up to this point, up to the point where they found the, the Ryland fragment, P52, secular scholars said that John's gospel had to have been written in the 3rd century B.C., because when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all seem pretty similar. They have very similar stories. In fact, we call them the synoptic gospels because they, they all kind of seem to be going off the same material and relaying the same stories. But when you look at John's gospel, it is kind of different accounts. There's different miracles in there. There's a couple of different parables in there that Jesus taught. And so scholars looked at it and said, you know what, this is so different. John's probably some third century guy that's just making stuff up. So there's no way that that he really knew Jesus. Well, there's a problem in that you can't have the original written in the 3rd century if you have a fragment of it dating 125, right? So the the logic would say that this must have been written, that John's gospel had to have been written sometime before 125. And in fact, now most scholars agree that John's gospel was written around 90 A.D., and what's, what's really amazing about this is that John's gospel was written in, in the city of Ephesus, which is on the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. That's about 500 miles by boat from Egypt. If you were to go by land, that's 2,000 miles. 
So what's so amazing is that within a matter of 30 years in the ancient world, you have John's gospel being written and copied and distributed throughout the known world. That tells us that somebody thought that message was pretty important, that the people needed to know about Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. A lot of people still question. They say, okay, so, so we get it. We, we see that the Bible is supported by archaeology, and, and we can see that, um, that the text is reliable, but, but what about all these other historical texts? I mean, how does it compare to, say, the writings of Plato or Caesar or Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey? Right? So let's look at that. When we look and we compare... Uh, scripture, the New Testament specifically, to the writings of Plato, and I apologize, this is a little bit smaller than I expected, but Plato was written between 427 to 437 BC. The earliest copy we have of Plato comes from around 900 AD. So that's about 1,200 years difference between the time that it was originally written and the earliest copy we have. And there are only seven copies of Plato's writing in existence today that we have. And that's not even enough for scholars to look at and compare these copies to determine what the accuracy is because there's just not a large enough sample. Next are the writings of Caesar's, widely accepted as accurate, reliable history. Caesar was writing between 144 BC, and the earliest copy we have of Caesar's writing is 900 AD. Again, a thousand years difference between the time it was written and the earliest copy we have. And we only have 10 copies of Caesar's writings. Again, not enough to, to really demonstrate that there's a consistency, that, it, that there's an accuracy. The closest that we have from the ancient world is Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. It was written around 900 BC, and the earliest copy we have dates to 400 BC. That's just 500 years difference. And there are 643 copies of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And they, they, as they examine these texts, they find that there's a 95% accuracy rating between all the texts. That's pretty good. Now the New Testament. Written in the first century uh, AD, the earliest copy is 125 uh, AD, which is the second century. And you have less than 50 years from the time that it was originally written into the earliest copy that we have. That's pretty amazing. Not only that, but we have over 5,600 copies of the New Testament. And when scholars take out and they compare all of these manuscripts, all of these copies of the New Testament over 2,000 years, what they find is that there's a 99.5% accuracy rate in the copy and the transmission of the text. That's pretty phenomenal. I mean, when you consider that people take Caesar's writings and his history as just fact, and there's not even enough there to, to determine its accuracy, yet when you look at Scripture, we see that it's 99.5% accuracy. I read another article that talks about when you take out some of those spelling changes that we talked about earlier, just some of those spelling and stylistic changes, it comes down to 99.9% accurate. That's phenomenal. That's pretty amazing. But to me, the most amazing thing is not that, that the scripture is supported by archaeology or that, that we have this, um, kind of, of uh, work that we can do with the text to, to compare it and see how reliable it's been over time. The most amazing thing is what the Bible claims about itself. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. 
It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the first thing we see here is that all scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired. Now, when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we're not talking about the inspiration like the works of Shakespeare are inspired. No, we're talking about the process of God's spirit supernaturally working through man to record his message to all mankind in a dependable way. That's what we mean when we're talking about the inspiration of scripture. And the next thing we see is that it says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. When this passage talks about teaching, it means teaching you to do what is right. And when it says rebuking, it means teaching you what is not right. Correcting means teaching you how to get it right. And then that last word, training, in righteousness, really the the word for training there is child training, is how it literally translates. And it's the idea of teaching you how to continue doing what is right. Alright, so... That's, that's what it's talking about. And not only that, but it goes on to say that there's a deeper purpose. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for good works. Right? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a purpose behind it. There's a purpose of why we go through the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that's so that we could be thoroughly equipped. Now, what the NIV translates as thoroughly equipped, it really carries this idea. um, The word thoroughly there means to be complete or perfect. And it's not the idea of being perfect like we no longer sin, because let's face it, that's never going to happen in this lifetime. Uh, It's the idea of being, it's kind of a, um, it's like a soldier or like a professional athlete who keeps their body in complete physical shape. And then they're equipped, they're given the equipment that they need to go out and perform their job. That's the idea of being thoroughly equipped. That's what it means. It means to be in complete shape. To be completely fit and equipped for every good work. That's the next part, is, is that you're equipped for every good work. There's a purpose to the equipping. Right? It's important that we understand that we don't read the Bible, we don't study the Bible just so we can become nicer people. The purpose of studying the Bible is not so that we can just learn to sin less. The purpose of the Bible is is not just so we can go out and better defend our faith, although those are all likely side effects of someone who's reading and studying the Bible on a regular basis, right? But the purpose of the Bible is so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean when he talks to Timothy about every good work? Does he mean that you can be thoroughly equipped to go help your neighbor's cat get down from the tree? Or that you could be thoroughly equipped to help some poor person change their tire on the side of the road? Those are all good works, right? Or does he mean that you are thoroughly equipped to now go serve at the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving Day? Those are all good works, but that's not what Paul has in mind. When you look at the entire book of Timothy, what you see is that Paul is encouraging Timothy that he would do the ministry of the gospel, that he would be thoroughly equipped to do God's work of preaching Jesus and teaching Jesus and coming alongside of other people and helping them understand. And if you go back to verse 15 
Uh, this, is what, this is what Paul says in verse Second Timoth- uh, Timothy 3.15. He says that the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that we would have the joy of seeing others come to this knowledge of truth that, that we would see them be made wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And then we would have the opportunity to come alongside of them and, and be with them as they go through their teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as they're going about the process of, of investing in other people, sharing the gospel with them. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, go make disciples, right? Making disciples, again, isn't, isn't us just sitting down, having our quiet time, and becoming good, nice people. That's not at all what Jesus had in mind. He, he had in mind that we would go, that we would be sent, that we would be active in participating in God's work. Remember, we, we talked at the beginning about God's, uh, about how the Bible is this one long storyline. And it starts with God's creation of man. But man rebels against God and he sins. And from that point on, God begins working to find a way to make man right in his relationship with God again. And that comes through the person of Jesus Christ, that we could be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we have. I love this passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorites, because uh, if you were to, to read the entire book of Timothy, or even just go up a couple chapters, Paul's encouraging Timothy to remember what he's learned from the time he was young. And how all that Scripture that he learned from the time he's young is able to make him wise for salvation, but, but that's not all that God has to offer, that God has this plan that he wants you to continually be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness, that you can then go out and teach others and demonstrate to others what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and help them understand that, that they would have the opportunity to come to knowledge. And, and I love it because that's my background. I was raised in the church, and, and that's what my parents taught me. And that's what my wife and I are trying to teach our kids. You know, we, we have uh, this, this saying that we tell the kids every night before we read the Bible with them. We say, the Bible is God's word and everything in it is true. Say that with me. The Bible is God's word and everything in it is true. Right? Why would God give people, through his Holy Spirit, why would he give them something that they can't trust? He's given us the Bible that we can trust, we can believe. Scripture tells us that God cannot lie, that God is truth. So we can know that his word is truth, that we ought to be going out. We ought to be a light to the world, like we just talked about um, in, that, in that song that we sang, that, that we could change the world, right? Imagine. Imagine if, if each of us were this week to study God's word, study the Bible. We read it, we applied it, and we lived it. Not only would it change us, but it would change the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. That the Bible is your word and everything in it is true. And Lord, we pray that as we go throughout our week this week, that, that you would help us to to be faithful in communicating your word and your truth to everyone around us. Lord, let us be taught. Help us to know what is right and what is not right. And when we do things that are not right, God, we pray that your word would would continually show us how to make it right. Not only that, but how to continue staying right with you.
Lord, we recognize that, that that's not the sole purpose of Scripture, but it's, it's the purpose of, of the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness is so that we can be sent out by you in your power to share the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the world around us. And so we pray for your strength and your power to do that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.